You're listening to the DIY Recording Guys Podcast, your one-stop information source for DIY music production, with your hosts, Fadim Karaz and Benjamin Hall. Hey, hey, welcome to another Yo. episode of the DIY Recording Guys Podcast. How are you, Ben? I'm doing great, Fadim. It's great to be back doing another episode. It's been a while. Yes, it's been a very long while. And what's new? For a good reason. Right, 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 right. Yes, I'm I'm a dad now and um I'm I'm I need that like shirt that says metal dad or something, you know? <laughs> like Yeah. I feel like I'm like a Beavis and Butthead character. It's an old reference. It's a dad reference. <laughs> <laughs> very old reference, but Still applicable. It's funny too because I, I've gone through this phase since I, I don't go to as many shows now. Not dad related, but just in general, it was like pandemic. I didn't go to shows, but I still want to support bands. So I've gone mm-hmm. through this phase of like buying band shirts. So now I'm like mm. the dad wearing like old band. I have like a clutch Elephant Riders t shirt, and I'm that guy. That's it. <laughs> I love it though. I feel like. Clutch is the perfect dad. It's it's the band for dads. It's the dad band. Exactly. <laughs> and it's all like it's the type of borderline like borderline metal, but you know, it's a hard rock band that you can listen to with your yeah. five year old, right? I'm I'm supposing you saw them you've seen them live before, right? A thousand times, yes. I've only seen them once. I got lucky to see them. I think it was at the very last Rock on the Range or the next to last one. They were mm. playing a side stage. They were just killing it. It was awesome. Yeah. Just Neil Fallon up, is just like, like a hard he's blues. A charismatic front man, right? He's just got yeah. that gravelly voice. It's just satisfying. And it's funny because my, my wife is not a fan of that style of music, but I took her to a clutch show years ago. <laughs> Mm-hmm. She was like, I like that he's yelling, but I can tell what he's saying. And I was like, yes, <laughs> he can do that. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. And I love, yeah. too, they just embrace, like, it's the no frills band. They're like, yeah, I'm wearing got the a one t-shirt banner. I got a garage. <laughs> yeah, I've got a, this is a t-shirt I got at a garage sale. And, and these are Levi jeans that I'm wearing and we're rocking out. And, and they can pull it off. Like, I. Yeah. I saw Seven Dust perform and they kind of dressed the same way. And I'm like, I expected more Seven Dust. You know, I wanted you to look cooler. But with Clutch, I expected. So it works. Yes, you're right. You're right. They're, they're very, there's something very wholesome about four guys who have been playing together since high school. And really, if you want a story about just keeping your head down and just doing it year after year, I mean, they honestly. I think it's crazy that they never had radio play because their songs are so catchy. They have so many catchy hits, right? But for some reason, that they never did it, but they just love it. They just tour hard. They have an album every two or three years, and they've made a sustainable career. They've been doing it since, like, 89. Man, it's wild. That's crazy. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I, I mean, that perseverance pays off. That's I mean, that's what we're learning, doing studio stuff, and I think it's true for no matter what you do. Yeah, man. I'm excited to get back into the swing of things with the DIY recording guys. And uh, we're kicking it off with a very exciting episode today. Maybe not so much exciting, but necessary nonetheless. And we're going to show you why it's exciting. Sexiest episode ever. What is it? 
we're talking about editing. Yes, 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 editing. So probably the least, it's probably my least favorite thing to do in studio production, but like it does feel so good whenever it's it's done. It's kind of like, um, I don't know, it's like gathering up wood chips from outside and you know <laughs> they're just strewn all over your yard. But then like you have a clean yard and you have a nice pile of wood chips. Is that a very is that like a Pittsburgh know. thing to like pick up the wood chips? Because I've never heard of that as a chore. <laughs> is that what well, you guys do? I don't know, like I, a certain time of year in the autumn, everybody yeah. goes out and like picks up wood chips. So funny story, maybe not with the wood chips. I don't know where that came from, but I live uh, <laughs> the house that I'm in right now that I live and produce out of actually was the house that my dad grew up in. Oh, it's okay. an old house. Um, and my, my grandparents used to live here whenever I was growing up because we were just next door Mm -hmm. and I would spend a lot of time as a little, as a little one with my grandparents. And one of the only things that I can remember my grandma consistently doing in the afternoons was going outside and picking up sticks because this huge maple tree we have outside the house that's still here, it drops so, so many sticks. I don't know if it's like dying or what's happening, but. You could pick. You could spend like an entire afternoon picking up sticks wow. that this tree has dropped. Okay. And then a week later, they're everywhere. They're everywhere again. So it's just like, it's the chore to do. It's just there to do. I don't like doing it. I don't like doing it, but I hate the way my yard looks when there's sticks everywhere. I <laughs> love it. I love thing. that we got this this background on you. It's like like uh, your origin story. Like if you were a superhero, <laughs> yeah. that would like me and my grandma. We would. Pick up wood chips yep, in the yard. That's right. I still, I'm, I'm still doing it, right? I'm still doing it until I get a studio intern. So if any of you are interested. <laughs> that's that's the worst advertisement for uh, getting a studio <laughs> intern I've ever heard. But yes, I know what you mean. <laughs> Probably, yes. But, you know, in general, I like your analogy. It is, is a chore that needs to be done. I, I was thinking about like, uh, well, we, we were talking a little bit offline about editing. And we'll define it in a second and talk about all the ins and outs of it. But I used to edit everything meticulously before I like did any mixing work. And I, I don't do that anymore. Maybe we'll talk about why. But mm, interesting. there was this weird experience where uh, you you hit play on a bunch of stems and you're like, that's eh, pretty good. But then you start going <laughs> track by track and like doing the editing, cleaning up the noises, tightening timing, doing all the things we're going to talk about. And you're kind of, it's like bending down and picking up sticks. You're just picking up one stick at a time and then at the end right. of it, you get to your yard and you turn around and you're like, oh, wow, a clean yard. It's the same thing with like editing and audio. Like when you're done, you hit play again and you're like, oh, my God, this sounds amazingly better. And you haven't even like touched any mixed things yet. And there's this mm-hmm. weird tendency, I feel like, for musicians to forget how like loosely they tracked something so then when they hear like the finished product, a lot of it is like they're amazed at how good it sounds, but it's like because the performance sounds so much better, right? So it's it's one of those things where yeah. like picking up little sticks adds up to a big difference. I'm taking your analogy, but go ahead, add something to there for me. Well, it's easy to forget about because it's not sexy in any way. It's it's the part that like um and you know, giving another analogy, like everybody's favorite Everybody's favorite stories in general are Cinderella type stories, the rags to riches. And what you don't hear a lot of times is that that in between, like 
all the hard years of in the rags leading up to the riches, it wasn't <laughs> just like it was an instantaneous thing. And, and I feel like very similarly, it's like kind of one of those things that even when you're talking about production, like whether you're a band talking about your experience in the studio and maybe you didn't even get to see the editing, maybe the producer just did right. it on his own time, but it's like not one of those things you want to talk about with your fans. It's kind of like getting ready in the morning. Like you don't want people to see you before you're like, you put on your makeup or you like, like washed your face or put on nice clothes that aren't stinky and dirty and fixed your hair or whatever else. Like it's, it's just one of those things that's, you know, it's unsightly. And it is. But I it, think, I think you're onto something with that, with that last thing you said, because there's a tendency, I think all of us have this where, we're, you know, as purists and as people who take pride in mm. our craft with our musicianship, there's a tendency to say like, no, 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 no. It's the way I, like the way I played it is the way it goes on the album. Do like the Jimmy Page thing. But what you said is perfect. It's like, yes, I look different when I wake up in the morning than I do that afternoon if I'm like going for a job interview. That doesn't mean yeah. I'm cheating in some way. I'm just putting my my best foot forward. And even really, mm. I mean, I don't know, maybe like the top 1% of guitarists maybe don't need their stuff edited, but I would venture to say that unless you're playing like freeform jazz, like you're getting edited and you don't yeah. know it. <laughs> if somebody's mixing your stuff. Yeah. Man, that's the best analogy ever. Like the, I look different when I wake up than when I go to my job interview in the afternoon. Like I'm going to definitely use that with bands in the studio because that's a perfect analogy. Like you're mm. not a different person. You just have cleaned up. You've cleaned up. You've put your best foot forward. Yeah. So let's, yeah. The way I kind of have like, I was thinking about how I would define editing and I have this, this is just my own made up definition. I said, it's the process mm. by which a variety of recording errors are corrected. Hmm. I like that. Feel like free that. to add to I that. Put... I can, you know, then we can get into breaking it down. I have like, you know, I, I, I have five things that um, I listed as like most common things that I listen for and edit. But if you want to uh, chime in on yeah, that definition, I don't know if go I, ahead. I don't know if I have a more concise definition. I like your definition, but... My philosophy or the way that I think about it is like editing helps get me the rest of the way from how I actually performed in recording to like what I intended to do mm. <laughs> helps get me the rest of the way without because before when I first started learning um, how to record along with my performing ego or as a musician, I felt like I'm going to if it takes me 100 takes, I'm going to play it 100 times. And then at some point you realize, you know, that's that's a, a good ideology to have if we don't have lives and other things to do. <laughs> but, you know, I'm never going to finish a song or be productive or move on to other things I need to do if I do this with every single project. I'm going to drive myself crazy. So I embrace editing as a way to, like, get my 90% or 95% playing ability, that extra that extra 5% of the way without having to do a million takes. Yeah. Yeah. Good point. It, it, it can be a time saver tool uh, for sure. Yeah. So a list a couple of things here that I typically will edit on every single song I work on. Number one is just 
bad recording quality. These are just the things that got onto the recording that you didn't intend, like pops, clicks, noise, clipping, you know, the little guitar fret noise at the end where the it's the quiet part and the singer is whispering, like those little things. Yeah. Uh, number two I had was or sometimes you leave them. Sorry? Or sometimes you leave them. Sometimes you leave sometimes those are gold. Sometimes those make the song. Yeah. <laughs> yes. You have to listen. Um number two I had was timing. So this is just this is the most common one, probably. It's like you just didn't play it quite tight enough. The kick drum and the bass were supposed to hit at the same time. They didn't. It sounds sloppy. We have to fix that. Uh number three I had was pitch. And feel free to jump in at any time. Sure. Uh, pitch is like most commonly vocals, but it could be like the guitar was a little out of tune in a worst case scenario. Um, number four was timbre. This is like just it's it's wrong. Something the microphone was in a <laughs> bad spot, and we just have to do something drastic to try and salvage it. And number five I had was kind of an odd one, but I put it in here anyway. It was lyrics. Um, I found sometimes I'll get a really good take <laughs> from a vocalist, but they said the wrong word, and then I have to, you know, take something oh, that's from a, a different one. take to fix it, replace it. Yeah, that's a good one. The first thing that came to my mind was one of the songs I produced for Anna Navarre. I think that you helped master both of them, mm -hmm. correct? Yep. It's the more poppy one. She says the F word in there in the second verse. Right. And her timing was bad. Uh, so I had to stretch the F word out. No way. So it landed on the beat and it worked. I was so <laughs> I was so happy that it turned out well because I was worried that I'd have to call her up to come and re-record that part. But it worked out. Yeah, wow. I used Melodon that part, to stretch yeah, it. I remember that part. Um so where would would you count that as a timing issue or is that like a there's something else? It kind of it was timing, but it was a tough timing because when I typically think of editing timing, it's the the starting and stopping. It's mostly the start, but like the where where the stopping, the cadence yeah. of the singer actually starts. Yeah. But on that one, she started in the right place. She didn't. She just didn't hold out the word. Well. That was kind of a producer decision because I think she sang what she intended to sing, but I was like, that would be cooler better. if she held it out longer and it ended on the beat. Yeah. Yeah. And it wound up working. Yeah. Well, did she say anything about it? No. <laughs> she yeah. might not have even known yeah. or, or remembered. Yeah. That that's what I'm I think that's what happens with a lot of times with editing is like invisible. It's the guy behind the guy. Well, people will hear it and yeah. be like, wow, that sounds amazing. And they don't understand how much of that work is those little editing things. It's just a little, little tightening up. So yeah, I guess we, I mean, just, I'll just go down my list and feel free to jump in on any of these, like I said. So number sure. one, you know, bad quality recordings. Uh, this happens very commonly. There'll be noise, some kind of noise. And there's denoise plugins that uh, like I use um, Isotope RX, which works great. But, it's probably the best that I've run into. Yeah, I think so. I think it's the most transparent. But um, since we're DIY recording guys, you know, you can do this DIY kind of like the same way noise canceling headphones work. So if you have some kind of like shh, some kind of hiss, some kind of noise, something, if you find a part of the audio file that has just that noise, what you can do is take that noise, 
copy it onto a new track and copy it like as many times as you need to so that it matches the length of your audio track and then just invert the phase on the noise and you can cancel the noise of your audio track that way. That's how, basically how noise-canceling headphones work, and it works hmm. pretty well. I mean, if you have a very consistent, you know, hiss or hum or something that you're trying to uh, to get rid That's of. That's a brilliant idea. I, yeah, I mean, I might actually think about doing that in some situations where I might need to in the future. Yeah, and I've actually, idea. this one, this next thing I, I read about this somewhere. I've never tried it, and I'm skeptical that it'll work, but it's the same principle. <laughs> I've heard of people using this technique when, um, Dealing with headphone bleed, like for a singer, if the headphones are bleeding into the microphone, I've read that some, apparently somebody's tried this, after they record the vocal track, they just kind of leave the headphones on the person's head and have them not sing, play the track back again and record that. So there's just recording the bleed and then phase invert mm. the bleed to remove it from the vocal track. Okay. I'm yeah, in theory, skeptical that that would work, but I've read about it somewhere. <laughs> this is my thought. In theory, I love the creativity of addressing that problem, but I think in uh, the biggest variable though is singers don't just stand there, not moving the perfect distance away from the microphone, and so you're going to get weird phase. Agreed. Totally agree. Yeah. I mean, it, yeah. I, I'm skeptical that it'll work, but. So your mileage may vary. Um, you got any other tips or tricks on noise? The one thing I do want to add is I'm interested to hear you talk more about um, not doing all the editing right after recording mm. and doing it later when you get into mixing. But this is the one thing that I will kind of wait until mixing to take care of. Like, And I think part of it is that I just forget or I'm excited to move on. But a lot of times I don't address noise issues until mixing because I don't really care if there's noise and unless I can hear it. Yeah, I agree with you. Um, you can definitely go overboard. It, it, it's a, it's a fine line because on the one hand we, we talk about like little, it's a lot of little changes adding up. It's a mm -hmm. lot of little sticks you have to pick up to make the yard look clean. But on the other hand, yeah, you can definitely drive yourself crazy. So yeah, we'll talk about, that's one of the reasons why I started doing it later in the process. Yeah. yeah, and there's some things you can do too to just like clean that up without having to listen to the whole track. And like one easy thing is uh, you can just put a gate on a rhythm guitar, ah. and then that way it's never going to. Anytime that there's not a volume a volume happening over a certain threshold, it's going to be completely great, silent. Great hack. Yeah, that's a nice automation. So you, if you set the gate level right. Basically, when the when the level of the guitar, especially if it's a distorted guitar and it's all like very compressed anyway, when the level mm -hmm. falls below a certain level, the gate will close, so to speak, and then just create silence. And that's a great way to, especially like like high gain amps are notoriously noisy, oh, yeah. right? You hear that all yeah. you hear that all the time from amps. So yeah, great. And great in tip. in cert, certain situations, like stylistically, I mean, like I'm always going to put a gate on a guitar. It just sounds better that way. So your work's already half done if you're thinking about that yes. up front. Yes, that's a great point. I do tend to use gates, especially for like tight, tight rhythmic stuff. Um, sometimes you do have to go in and manually trim stuff and cut stuff to uh, to tighten up further, especially on bass. I find that actually like I find like a lot of like 
when the guitar is playing like a chug palm muted thing that's got it like a genty like start stop thing i find mm -hmm. bass notes will ring a little bit longer than i want them to even if the note starts on time it sounds good but man if you can just tighten that bass note yeah. up to be to stop with the guitar it sounds so much tighter i totally agree with this i almost never put gates on bass mm. but i always do on guitar and I don't know if it's the frequency response, but guitar just tends to hand, handle that better. And additionally, this one song that I'm in the middle of mixing right now, actually, I put a guitar amp on my bass DI mm. because I wanted some extra grit. That I wound up having to edit manually because there's so much noise. I did the performance. There's so much noise when I let off of the notes. So there's something about the bass frequencies going through a guitar amp that are even worse than even trying to edit guitar. like a, a bass with distortion on it. So ah, there, okay. there is something definitely too like bass. Yeah. That, like the gate. Yeah. I don't know if it's like, enough. because bass is less compressed in general than guitar. So guitars handle gates better. Or hmm. if, um, it's because guitars are easier to palm mute. Maybe I don't, yeah, it could be any number of reasons, but, uh, it could be. Yeah. 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 Cool. I never palm mute bass, but I'm sure some people do. Yeah. All right, um, let's move on to timing. So timing issues, again, we talked about it's really just what well, you said it best, I think. It's what does the note start on time and does the note end on time, I think is equally valid, especially with like there's parts where like it's a, you know, you, it's a guitar chord, but then it has to be muted at the right time, like with the groove of the song. Those are equally important as when the notes start. So there is a couple of, there are a couple of different uh, techniques here. Um, start with, just start with slip editing. What is slip editing and how do you go about it? So basically you're chopping the audio, you're splitting it and you're slipping one piece of that audio either backwards in time and overlaying the other audio or you're moving it forward and then you're gonna have to drag the other audio piece forward in time and add crossfades, essentially. Right, slip right. Super important crossfades. So we'll definitely get into that. And um, so, yeah, you said it. You said it perfectly. Chopping up, chopping up the performance and sliding the individual notes or sections around. So you're doing it really manually. Although there's some, um, you know, there's some some tips there. Do you, we'll talk about the other maybe options for timing, which is like something like elastic audio. Um, elastic audio is different because in, in elastic audio, you're, you're effectively treating the file like a rubber band. So you're putting these mm -hmm. stretch point markers on it, which are like the anchors, and then you're stretching them back and forth. So you're, you're not physically moving the audio. You're actually changing the length of the, the audio file. And within reason, if you're not doing anything too crazy, it can be transparent. So let me ask you, uh, how do you decide whether you're going to slip edit versus using elastic audio? Good question. Um, I think one thing that I found, and actually a good example of this is the track that I gave you we're gonna listen to today. Hopefully you can't hear it, <laughs> but I used exclusively elastic audio on that mm. because I was in a hurry. These are on guitar tracks and it's a very percussive metalcore track. And what I found is that when you're warp editing transient things, uh, the warping tends to mess with the punchiness 
of the transient. So if at all possible, if you're dealing with very transient sources, like, uh, and it could be anything, but in particular, like drums or something that's hit very hard, I would say try to avoid slip editing or I'm sorry, avoid warp, warped audio. Elastic yeah, totally audio. agree. That's pretty much my decision point is if it's something very transient, even guitar, if it's like a funk guitar that has very, you know, really transient yeah. stuff. To me, that's a cue that I'm doing slip editing because first of all, it'll be easy. It's easy to identify those transients so you can chop the stuff up really quickly. Some you can even automate it in some DAWs. And then second of all, like you said, the warp or elastic audio or whatever it's called in your DAW can mess with transients for sure. And um, it's usually want to avoid it. Um, so yes, when you're so when you're sliding stuff around, you already mentioned the term crossfades and fades. Tell me about that. So a fade is basically what it sounds like. You're uh, you're setting a type of a type of volume automation essentially that tells the track how to get quieter. And the most typical kind that you'll see is a linear one, which basically means uh, equal power ratio um, decrease in volume. So for example, like one to one, like for every second something goes ahead in time, it's going to be reduced by like a decibel or two decibels. So it's, it's decreasing in linear straight line fashion. You could also do something that's more of a uh, logarithmic fade, I guess would be the, the word for it, but it's more of a curve. Like mm -hmm. it can start fading out slowly and then dive off really quick. Right. Or you could have something that dives off faster and then it slowly fades out. Um, and a crossfade is basically just pairing up a fade with a, or a fade out with a fade in across two different, two different right. cuts of audio. Right. So if you picture like your original performance was all continuous, but once you start chopping stuff up and sliding it around, you're going to get like, for example, let's say you have a gap, a very small gap between two notes. Well, when that note, when one note stops, you're going to get a pop because it's suddenly the, you know, the waveform is up here somewhere and suddenly it drops to nothing. And then when the next note starts, you're going to get another pop because you're going to go from zero to some volume uh, you know, yeah. very instantaneously. So those are clicks and pops. So what we do is, like you said, it's not just fade outs. I think you were talking mostly about fade outs. It's also fade ins, it mostly. could be. Yeah. Uh, so you're fading in and out. And then occasionally, if you have two clips that are overlapping, you have a cross fade. And um, I'll give you a couple of tips here that I just have from um, just my own editing playbook. For one thing, you mentioned the different types of... Um, fade types there's so that you mentioned linear there uh which is another way to say that is um like equal gain if you have an equal gain mm. crossfade then there are two lines one line going down one line going up there's also equal power um play around with them some of them will sound more transparent than others i personally like equal power i think um which is the one that uh looks like this i i do think that that looks the most transparent um I still haven't figured out, mostly because I'm lazy, but I still haven't figured out if I can change what type of crossfade, um, the the crossfade quick command key will do I'm sure in my you DAW. Can. Yeah, because I probably be. would change it to equal power. Yeah, 
just because I feel like it sounds more natural, but I just leave it at, at a normal um, yeah, equal and it's, gain. For some things, actually, I've read that for some things, equal gain is better, but I have mine set to equal power all the time. I find it, like you said, it sounds a bit more natural. Another thing that happens sometimes when you sleep, even if you have um, a crossfade, you'll hear like a tearing sound as you transition from one waveform to the other. It's subtle. It's not like a transient. It's just like a little warble, like a... And for low frequencies, you can get rid of that by zooming way in and just nudging the clip. I'm talking like 10 samples in in, in one direction, which isn't going to make an audible difference in terms of timing, but you can get those waveforms to visually line up Mm-hmm. And that tearing sound will go away. It works like for for low frequency stuff like basses, synths, it'll work ten times out of ten to to get rid of those like little editing artifacts. Yeah. A quick question for you. So I'm just realizing now that I learned this from um, a course that I bought, but they recommended when you're slip editing to try to as much as possible um, slip crossfade things at the uh, zero degrees horizontal x-axis. So do you find that- that, points of quiet, you mean? um, When you're trying to to line up two takes. So exactly what you were saying, you're trying to line up the the waveforms. Mm -hmm. They were saying, I guess you would have like a, you know, a, a hump and also a valley. So you're gonna get a weird like warble sound if they're in the middle. Right but you want to bump it back. And they were saying like, you want to crossfade right at the zero crossing point. Oh, interesting. Is, I, so I don't know if it matters. So uh, my question is like, do you find that it matters to, to crossfade at the the zero crossing or can you just crossfade as long as you have like two waveforms that, that line up? Yeah, exactly. I, I can't say whether it matters or not, but I've always just done like the two waveforms lining up. And then to me, that's, Maybe not ten times out of ten, but nine point nine times out of ten, it it solves that little warble problem. Okay. But I, that's interesting that it should um, crossing at the zero. I mean, I in just, some in some sense that makes on some level that makes sense to me intuitively, but I've not tried it. I've just always done that by default ever since I learned that, and I never questioned it. So yeah, I was just curious. that makes sense. Also, go with um. I find that I used to go with very short, you know, like five millisecond crossfades but i actually find longer mm. crossfades a lot of times sound more transparent yeah i agree with that mm-hmm. cool mm-hmm. Um, i think in general too about about crossfades yep. and slip editing best case scenario is you can crossfade in a in a place of silence because then it doesn't totally. it doesn't matter how big the crossfade is but in the situations where you have to to slip edit into the middle of like a performance take then you sometimes have to play around with um with like drums i find it's better to have a short cross shorter crossfade mm. because you can hide the edit in the the transient yes. it's so loud your ear can't pick up the the little warble that might be there whereas if you had a longer crossfade it's going to be obvious and in other situations like if you're editing a guitar or or a cymbal crash a longer crossfade is better because it kind of hides where the edit happens. So you have to play around with it. That's a great point. That's a really great point. There's this uh, there's this idea called masking where like whatever happens right before a loud transient, you won't remember. It's like the 
Mm. Men in Black. You just, you know, they get the flash yeah. and you just forget. <laughs> so it, what you said is perfect. Like if you can hide a crossfade right before a snare hit, nobody's going to hear any warble. So that's a great trick. And uh, yeah, you're right. You're mm -hmm. spot on on the um, long stuff for cymbals, especially if you're going like across takes on a, like a live kit. Ooh, that's a, that's a hairy one, but sometimes you can get away with it with a nice long crossfade. Mm -hmm. Another thing is just in general, you try a gentle approach. I mean, I feel like you can go overboard and like really put everything on the grid. And sometimes that's actually appropriate. It's going to sound better than doing nothing. But a lot of times I found, especially with like good players, like I've edited guitar tracks where the guitarist is on, but the the group there's groups of notes that push and pull maybe like yeah four notes will be a little fast and then it'll kind of he'll he'll catch up and the four note next four notes will be on and the next four notes will be a little late it's perfectly okay to like edit those in sections and just nudge them and not completely kill like every single note on the grid right yeah and i will do the same difference for different parts of the song like right um, this song in particular, once again, that we're going to be listening to later for the full song, the chorus is like open guitar playing eighth notes. I didn't even bother listening if it was in time or not, because nobody could tell. It doesn't matter. Almost doesn't <laughs> matter <laughs> as long as it's close. Whereas the breakdown that I have the clip from, it's a lot of percussive, like quick, um, you know, quick low notes that are. Paul muted or stuff, gated right. and every note's like i meticulously edited to the grid because it just sounds better and it's yeah. like a necessity for it to be that tight yeah yeah I mean, but right. it would make no sense to it, it would make no sense to spend all that time making sure the open chorus where everything is loud and like it's not percussive i'm just wasting time if i'm editing that and i'm actually taking away the live feel of the player so it's two losses yeah. in that situation. Yeah, there's uh yeah, you gotta kinda pick your battles, definitely. Mm-hmm. Um let's see, one thing I also wanted to note here is uh transient staggering is not necessarily a bad thing. Like if you think about a drum kit, we've talked about this many times. Why you don't want the room mic transients to be lined up with the overhead transients because you're you know, you're defeating the purpose of the room mics and putting all the transients on top of each other is actually gonna sound worse. There's, this is, again, one of those taste things, but sometimes it can be cool to have slightly staggered transients. Like maybe there's a Polyphia song, actually, um, uh, maybe 40 ounces, something off of the most hated, where they have like mm -hmm. this huge breakdown section, but the synth is a hair late. Like you get the transient oh, and then the synth kind of swells into it. I think we've talked about that before. And um, mm -hmm. it's really, it's a cool effect. It wouldn't be as cool if the synth peaked on the one. It would probably make things sound smaller, actually, right? Yeah. Um, another quick tip here on slip editing for vocals is a um, really interesting thing with vocals where vocal consonants have little gaps after them. Like T sounds, P sounds. If you really zoom in, there's like a bit of silence there between the consonant and whatever vowel is coming up. And it sounds weird mm. to put an edit like in between a word, like right after the letter T, but it works remarkably well. Especially because I, you've mentioned this with Melodyne huh. before, like where consonants don't have any 
tonal information. It's really just like a transient sound. So you can take the T from one take and put in the rest of the word from another take remarkably transparently. Oh, I don't think I've ever tried that, but that's a really cool trick. Yeah, yeah. Give it a give it a go. It's uh, yeah. The transients are great places um, to to look for for edit points on vocals or that not tra- consonants. I meant. Yeah. So I have an interesting use case scenario that came up with a vocal session I did last week that I want to bring up because uh-huh. it definitely was a huge learning thing when it comes to editing. Um, first thing was the vocalist sings with a lot of awesome grit Ooh. and Melodyne had a heck of a time with it because it thought that some vowels were consonants because wow. there was so much natural grit in, in his voice. So I think that, you know, one thing that's been interesting about like, you know, learning how to be a better producer, like especially when it comes to like recording a vocalist, is that in some ways I'm listening to pitch less than I'm listening to timing and timbre and yes. the performance because we can edit pitch, but you can't edit the actual tonality of the voice. Yeah. Well, in this situation, I think that when I record this vocalist or a gritty vocalist again, I'm going to pay more attention to tone. To, to pitch, uh, you mean? A little bit more. Yeah, a, a little bit more attention to pitch because it was definitely trickier um, for Melodyne to do the corrective stuff that I'm used to. So that was the first thing. Mm. And the second thing was, I'm a big fan of doing big productions, as you know, and vocals are included with that. And I think at one point in... The last chorus, there's like nine vocal parts happening at the same time. There's like wow. a lead vocal and then quad doubles with two harmonies and a th- no with three different harmonies happening. So it's a lot of vocals and it sounds awesome. But when it came to editing, I didn't think about the fact that like all of those S's at the end of words or beginning of words, but in particular the ends of words. I was getting, especially from his vocal performance and using the mic emulation that I did, like um, the S's were coming out super strong, which I like. I like that top end air. But uh, if all those consonants aren't ending at the same time, it's going to be so distracting. So I had to spend so much time just meticulously listening to the ends of all of these phrases and words just to make sure the the closing off of the phrase was happening consistently across all nine tracks. And it made me think about in the future, like honestly considering doing less vocal tracks and think about doing things where I can do more doubling um, using plugins instead yes, of actually definitely something having to, to be said for, Although I read this in a book 15 years ago and it works. On backing tracks in that situation, I cut all the S's and T's from the backing tracks. I just lop them off. Oh. You can't even notice. I might do that, actually. I might do that. Yeah, it's it's amazing because when you listen to the background vocals, it just sounds like somebody with like a speech impediment because you've cut out all the T's <laughs> yeah. and S's. But when you play it in the context of the track, it just sounds great. It just sounds like a fade away mm. and you only hear the one S. And, you know, there's reverb and stuff, so you the S... It sounds remarkably, remarkably natural. 
I like that idea too because you get that you'll get that effect anyways if you put a de-esser on a voice too hard. It yeah. sounds like a speech. Exactly. It's that type of effect. Yeah. You just do a, I just clip them all cuz those S's and T's as you know, you zoom in, they're really easy to see. So I just delete them. That's great. And I think that might actually help the whole performance too because then you could have a little bit harsher of an S from the lead vocal and get away with it as opposed to having to like uh, put on a heavy de-esser on every single track because the buildup of nine S's at the same time is just yeah. like, yeah. is a lot, yeah. So that was two things to, to think about that I not really encountered to that level before, but yeah, oh, those are great. Are definitely points. like a, unique things to keep in mind with vocals. Yeah, for sure. Cool. Um, quick, we already talked about Elastic Audio, but one place I'll definitely reach for Elastic Audio, saved my ass many times, is when um, you get like a guitar track that's got reverb on it already. Ugh, mm. hate that. <laughs> because you can't slip edit that. You can't slip edit like time-based effects that easily. And that's where Elastic Audio will really save that's you it can sound a lot more natural um than any kind of slip editing so and by elastic audio i mean warp audio whatever it's called in your daw that's where it's, it's a time stretching effect where you're either compressing audio or stretching it but the algorithms are advanced enough where uh, they can make it sound reasonably natural within within reason if you're trying to go like too much it'll obviously blow up but, right yeah i like that i'll also do things too where I mean, I even include Melodyne editing along with the Elastic Audio because they have a great Elastic Audio feature in Melodyne. Yes. So a lot of times with with vocals, I'll slip edit first, and then if there's something I can't get a slip edit on, like let's say there's two different takes that are back to back, and uh, the next word of that phrase happened too soon in the first take. Uh, and too late in the second take. So when you're trying to overlap them, it just it doesn't work. You're getting like a weird pop or artifact. Mm -hmm. Then um, I'll just leave them out of time and then I'll use the elastic audio and Melodyne to fix it. So I use a, a, a combination of editing techniques. Yes, I do a similar thing where I use a combination, but I'll try to... Um... I'll, if I can do, if I'm if I'm going to be doing well, first of all, for vocals, the first thing is to comp the take together from your various takes, which just means you go phrase by phrase. You have eight takes you've recorded, and you choose the best, you know, phrases or words from each one. So that's the first step for me. And then I'll do my timing stuff. If I have like, let's say I'm going to be doing any slip editing for timing, I do all that stuff. Then I go Melodyne, and then yeah, I'll I'll, con I'll even use Elastic Audio in Melodyne on top of everything I just mentioned if I need to. To like, for example, like with your uh, f bomb, where you had to stretch it out a little bit longer, right? That's a great application yep. for it. I think that's what I did for that too. Yeah, cool. But no, that was fun. And I will. So can you go into more? Can you go into a little bit more depth of like when you do? these techniques in in the span of like when you're working on a production like what like workflow wise is. yeah like when to when does that happen whenever you get into like the the slip editing versus the warped audio you know is there yeah unique situations question. so i i've been i've been i keep a journal I think we've talked about this and I, I write all kinds of stuff in it but i also write about like my audio production journey one thing I've been teasing out is this um, mix commandments. 
the order in which <laughs> I, I love do it. things. And one of the things I've been I've I've written that's sticking is tones before edits. And what what I mean by that is where I used to, as I mentioned, like let's say I would get a song with a bunch of DIs and a bunch of I'd go through and do all my editing, boom, 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 boom. It takes sometimes it could take all day to do all the editing. Yeah. And then the next day I come in and I'm like, all right, let's start picking tones and doing uh, you know, mixing or whatever. And I stopped doing that because to me, I, I want to get to the tones decisions and the big broad stroke imp- stuff that has heavy implications for the, the final sound. I want to do that first. I know I can get a tight edit after my brain is shot because so much of it is visual, right? It's lining things up. Yeah. I know I can get an edit with a fried brain, but I cannot make... I cannot trust myself to make good tone decisions with a fried brain. And I found that if I was getting too in the weeds, I got my microscope out and I spent too much time editing, I wasn't, it felt like I was making worse decisions by the time I got to like big picture stuff. So now if something is really bothering me, I'll fix it. If there's like a noise that just annoys me and pulls me out. But other than that, I try to get all my reamping done. I try to get all my drum tones chosen. Try to get everything good, and then I'll let it, and then I'm like, oh, oh, now it's a song. At that point, you know. Yeah. What do you do? That makes. I think uh, I think I'm similar. I'm one of the things I'm constantly trying to um, challenge myself with is committing in the recording phase. Yeah, I'm well, getting pretty good. Sure. I mean, that's essentially what you're talking about. Yeah. Um, so, like, I'll do interesting things. Like, I love recording with amp sims. Like, I think I would at this point unless there was a really unique rig with a player that really likes his rig, I would suggest just recording DIs and and going through an amp sim because I like the way that they sound so much, especially for modern genres and styles. Um, so I'll do my editing after recording is done with the amp sim on, but I'm essentially editing the DI, right? just listening through the plugin and then I'll print the edits and just start on mixing with the printed version. Right. Like I don't even worry about using the plugins anymore at that point. Like I'll I'll still export the DI just in case I want to change something later. But I've been trying to get a lot better about you know committing. Well, you and you you bring up type of thing. A couple of excellent points there. One important one that we haven't mentioned is the fact that it's much 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 easier to edit a guitar looking at the DI. So yeah. a lot of times, even if you get like two tracks, if you get like a DI track and the amp track, you can group them and still do all your editing using the DI as a visual reference, which is kind of what mm-hmm. you're doing. And you've already done the broad, like creative decision because you've already dialed in tones, I guess, like in, you know, what pre-production or as part of recording, right? Yep. Yeah. That's yep, great. That's, a, yeah. that's essentially it. Yeah. And I even I've even tried to challenge myself, which I don't recommend this, but I've even challenged myself in as far as saying like, I'm committing to it in recording. So when I get to mixing, unless it sucks completely, I'm going to deal with the mistakes with that it. I made. Right. Because I would have to do that anyways with stuff that somebody would send send me. Yeah. So it's like most of the time, if I'm making the decisions in recording, it's going to be better than what somebody sends me. So why not just deal with it and learn from it? Yes, totally agree with you there. 
I'd say the the one exception is maybe maybe vocals for me. Like I do try to comp vocals very early, like almost even possibly during the session. If not, then immediately after the session. For one thing, because if I'm recording backing vocals, I want to record them to my final comped take. Yeah. And also just, you know, main vocals are so important that I, I do try to try to get them right sooner than later. But, you know, even pitch stuff. No, I, I could see even like doing broad mix decisions on like reverbs and tones, even maybe before fixing pitch sometimes. I could I could see doing that. I don't know. That one I guess I go back yeah. and forth on for vocals. With with vocals, what I've been doing recently, I've even been printing it with like, which is funny because I have no like analog gear. But what I've been doing recently is um, I love my Slate plugins. So I'll have like their uh, virtual mix rack with uh, normally the Nave preamp emulation. Yeah. I like it. I love just that. Just at like the, it's awesome. I'll, I'll the, set it right around the like, trying to think like nine o'clock eight nine o'clock area and then i have that going through my the virtual microphone system that i have with the emulation i normally try to pick right there in the session like what sounds the best and then after that i'll have an instance of um the cla 76 and i'll print all that to the track and then um you know i'm i'm mixing from there like i've committed to anywhere from like 10 to 10 to 15 or actually 10 to 20 um db of gain reduction like i just commit that into the track yeah so. i mean for some productions i could see that work i that would be a little more than i'd be comfortable committing i guess but uh, i do track through like an analog compressor so i usually go a little bit lighter than that just in case but then I do more compression in, in the mix. But the point is like, even yeah. doing it that way, even if you just do a little bit of compression, a little bit of compression two different or three different times is gonna be a better result than like slamming a compressor in the mix, right? It's just gonna probably sound yes. better. No, mm -hmm. I totally agree with that. Yeah. Um, I guess more to, your, more to answer your question of like, when do you do the editing things? I was curious what you would say because I feel like for me, I try to do all of my editing as soon as recording is finished. Um, either before we move on to the next instrument, I do as much as possible, but inevitably there's always more to do and like I don't want to take up time if I'm running a session. Um, so I'll get the like majority of like the easy bulky things done quickly and then like I'll try to finish up as best as I can all of the editing before moving on to mixing. And yeah. then normally like... If there's things to clean up once I get into mixing, it's normally only like the silence things or like as I brighten the mix more and more, the certain imperfections, they start becoming more. Then you they, go they fix rear them. their ugly right. heads. Yeah. Yeah. And then I'll go address them yeah. there. But I'm trying to get to the point where like they're, they're few and far between because it's such a headache to like have to fix that stuff. Yeah, like there's something to be said about like you don't want to take yourself <laughs> out of whatever you're doing to be like, I got to go find wherever that pop is <laughs> to scroll through 30 tracks and see where, where it is. So you're right. There, Yeah, there is. I guess, you know, I still do editing earlier in the process than later, but the big thing for me, the big yeah. mindset shift for me was tones before edits. That was really the big thing that I wasn't doing. I used to, you know, edit the guitar DI first, then pick tones, and it's like, that's kind of productive. Like I want to be responding to my imp my instincts when I'm picking tones. So you're doing that anyway. It sounds like during recording, but I'm talking about more stuff where 
I didn't record it. I just get some tracks, you know, to mix or whatever. Yeah. Editing, you know, you, you can definitely lose the forest through the trees, so to speak, where like you and I talked about this, where like um, uh, somebody had done some editing for a song I was working on and it was like the bass was playing triplet notes, but whoever was doing the editing just was looking at the grid and they just made them like eighth notes. They just lined it up with the eighth note grid. And I was listening back to it. I was like, that's not right. I had to go back to the original <laughs> performance. I was like, he was playing triplets. And that's what happens if you're not like checking your work even while you're editing or while you're printing stuff is like you'll you'll miss stuff because it's it yeah. make your eyes bleed after a while editing, right? So you have to be careful. That is that's such a great point. And that was the one thing I was going to say that I liked about editing is that my only pet peeve of working in audio is that like you can't really multitask at all when you're working on audio. Your right. ears have to be attuned to what you're doing. But with editing, especially if it's drums to the grid, I can listen to a podcast because I'm just using my eyes. Yes. To your point, though, you absolutely should check it because, you know, in that situation, I think that was user error. But in other situations, and like we're all capable of user error, in other situations too, um, you might have something where the performer played something that was somewhere in between time like right. it wasn't triplets it wasn't quarter notes and then you have to make a you have to make a judgment call on like what is this supposed to be yes totally totally especially with like sloppy drum fills this happens to me all the time where i have to be like <laughs> hmm i'm trying to picture the drummer like what was what was he thinking <laughs> and sometimes you get it wrong <laughs> Editing's super important. So I guess at the end of this episode, uh, we almost forgot about the clip. Let's play the clip real quick. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. This is a perfect. This is a perfect example of in this situation. This was using elastic audio, but the broader example is how much editing actually makes a difference on the final product. And I would say that this guitar performance was actually a really good guitar performance too. Totally. But it just needed it needed cleaned up a little bit more. And so I took the time to stop mixing, edit the guitars. So we'll play the before and the after yes. of the- and, and when you're listening to this, keep in mind, like when you listen to it at first, you'll be like, that's pretty good. And then notice the difference yeah. with the second version. And uh, it's, it's, a, it's a night and day difference for like what you said, a good performance. So yeah, let's end on that. Mm -hmm. All right, so here's the before. Here's the after.
<laughs> brain explosion emoji. Okay, cool. Yeah, yeah for sure. All right, man. Cool, cool man. Thanks. Sign thanks for off. doing another episode. Uh, anything else to add, Vadim? That's it. All right. Well, until next time, we're the DIY Recording Guys reminding you to check yourself before you wreck yourself. Take care, everyone. If you're enjoying the podcast, take a minute to leave a rating wherever you like to listen to it or share it with your friends on social media. Also, Benjamin and I are working engineers and we love helping people turn ideas into finished productions. So if you're interested in working with one of us or just want to discuss a project you're working on, reach out. You can find my work at calmfrogrecording.com. Get me on Instagram at calmfrogrecording or shoot me an email, vk at calmfrogrecording.com. And you can check Benjamin's workout at dreamloudstudio.com. Hit him up on Instagram at dreamloudstudio or by email, ben at dreamloudstudio.com. And finally, join our Facebook group to engage with a whole group of friendly, like-minded people who are interested in DIY recording. Just search for DIY Recording Guys on Facebook. Thank you so much for listening and for your continued support. I'll see you next week.